When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today I'm on day five or six of COVID recovery. Um, I have a child that goes to first grade, and he got it last week, and then I got it. So, um, yeah, it's been quite a quite a week, and... I don't recommend this disease for anyone. Um, I was, I ran a marathon two or three weeks ago and um, did okay with that. And now I can, I get up, I walk around and I'm, I have to take a nap. So um, it's a pretty serious disease, even for me, who has a pretty good set of health right now, (laughs) thankfully. so we pray for all those that have it and have had it and um, those that are um, suffering from COVID complications long-term. But um, yeah, it's been really rough and my voice is pretty much shot. So I'll, there's a lot of coughing and whatnot that I cannot, my engineers cannot edit out. They just can't do much. So I hope you enjoy the story of Joseph as we explore him and his life today. It's hard to imagine a more terrifying experience than what Joseph goes through in this story. As a young boy, um, the youngest, second youngest of all the brothers, he is raised in a family with uh, two mothers and a father. His half-brothers are more numerous than his mother's sons. His mother has two, and his and Leah has ten sons and some daughters. Some of them, which we know their names, and this is the family that Joseph grows up in. We don't really get to choose our families. Uh, that's one of the great ironies of life. Um, that all of us, every single one of us on this planet were born into a family that we had no idea who they were, what they were doing, what they were up to, uh, and we just arrived into that family. And, and it's true of every single human on the planet. We don't really know what we're getting into uh, as we are being born into the families that we have been placed in. And every family is different. And as Tolstoy said very famously, every happy family is alike and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And the family of Joseph is unhappy in this way, in that there is a bitter rivalry between the, the families within the family, between the sons of Leah and the sons of the beloved wife, Rachel. We know that this rivalry goes back to the way uh, each of the mothers, each of the wives married the father. That Jacob goes to uh, work for his uncle, for Laban, and in that promise to work, in her family politics notwithstanding, um, and other things going on there, uh, he contracts to 
earn the dowry for his um, for for a bride, and at the last he works seven years for his beloved Rachel, and the night of his wedding he gets drunk, and he wakes up next to Leah. Leah is described as being very different from Rachel, um, and even if she's not different in the way we might think of different, um, she is. <clears throat> she is not the wife that he thought he was getting. And so he, in a rage, he goes to his father-in-law and his father-in-law, who is known for <clears throat> his trickery and duplicity, um, tells him that <clears throat> tells him that he can have Rachel immediately as long as he works another seven years for him. And so... Uh, so this family is started in this really awful situation that we can't fully imagine, perhaps, in the 21st century. Um, and so immediately Jacob has two wives that pretty much hate each other or feel that both have taken advantage of the other, when really it's all Laban's fault. Laban is the one who has done the trickery. Jacob himself is a trickster. He has tricked his brother Esau for the birthright. And so the trickery now done to Jacob is being done back to him. And so this family is really like, it's probably like equivalent to be, being born into a, a family where everybody works in the CIA or in the uh, Russian Foreign Service or something. Um, no one knows who's doing what at when, what time. You're never quite sure who to trust, who you can rely on. And so when Joseph is thrown into this pit and has to listen to his brothers decide what to do with him, to kill him, um, they decide to save him. And the way they decide to save him is to sell him as an enslaved child, um, which is pretty much a death sentence in many ways. And yet it gets them off the hook. <clears throat> this is what Reuben decides to do as the eldest brother. And so in some ways we can see God's deliverance of Joseph through this awful experience. That's how Joseph saw it. At the end of his life, Joseph will tell us how he saw this event, that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, he says. And I think this interpretive tool throughout Joseph's life is the way we can see it, that they meant it for evil and God meant it for good. And that interplay, the way those two things work together, the evil connivances of these selfish and, and desperate and greedy men working together with the purposes of God, who is meaning it for good, Somehow those things work together, and I'm not sure how that all works, but that's how Joseph saw it, and that's what we have in our sacred text. And so Joseph is sold to these Midianites, or Ishmaelites, um, I think they're called Midianites later in the text, <clears throat> which is the same place that, um, yeah, they're called Ishmaelites here in verse 25, which Ishmael is the forsaken son of Abraham, 
He's the son that Abraham has with Hagar, his enslaved handmaiden of Sarah. Um, At Sarah's behest, she puts him up to it, or at least encourages him. He has a baby with, he, she is impregnated with his child. And then she is thrown out into the wilderness and God saves her. And Ishmael grows up to be a mighty hunter. And his descendants are now traders, camel traders, um, going across the desert in the desert ships, ships of the desert, the camels. And their caravan arrives at this pit where they have thrown a descendant of Abraham, another descendant of Abraham, Joseph, um, who is the favored child of his parents, but now the forsaken child of his brothers. Um, And so they're carrying all these commodities down to Egypt and they plot to kill him. And instead of killing him, like their father, they have a trick. And the trick is to dip his coat of many colors into blood of goats and then take it back to the father and say, we're so sorry, we found this cloak. It looks like Joseph is dead. He was torn to death by wild animals. They devoured him and we can't find his body. And that's what they do. You can imagine the kind of uh, cruelty that you would have to have in your heart to dip a robe of a child in blood and take it to their parent and show that to them as if they were dead, knowing the truth all the while. (coughs) You can see that his he is sold for 20 pieces of silver to these Midianite traders, which is a lot of money. Um, the price of, ensla- of slaves has always been a lot. Um, this is the irony of, and the, the, the cruelty of, the sl- of enslavement the world over, that the, um, the price of Joseph's life is 20 pieces of silver. Um, it's a lot of, of cash that can be easily traded and distributed um, in that time period, and even in ours. 20 pieces of silver is what they get for his life, his whole life. And we look at the enslavement of of African people in this country, and their prices went up every single year in the enslavement, um, especially after the importation of slavery was, was made illegal into the Americas, into the North America especially. Um, the prices went up and it made it harder and harder for people to make the right decision um, to divest themselves of that resource. This is the, the, the evil of linking a system of money to the, to the price of a human life, um, that the prices go up and it makes it harder and harder for people to make the right decision. So their evil continues and the cruelty continues. We see it now, perhaps in a parallel way, um, in the way that we are killing this planet with our need for fossil fuels that we are being stared in the face with right now, um, our dependence on them and our need for them when in fact they are destroying the planet and the prices go up and up and up. And many people will make a lot of money, even in this um, crisis that we are having right now. Um, The fuel companies 
uh, will make a lot of money in this time. <clears throat> and that is the other evil of when we link uh, things to money. They always create more need for evil and a demand for evil. And so this enslavement system that they have bought into, these now, now these brothers are investors in the slave commodity market. And now they um, are tied to this. They are enslaved themselves to, to this kind of income. <clears throat> we look at the 20 pieces of silver and we think of Jesus, who is sold for 30 pieces of silver. That's the price of his life. The, the inflation of a life has not changed much over the millennia. We're talking about um, you know, thousands of years difference between Joseph and Jesus and yet the price of a human life remains in the same ballpark um, for what his life is worth, <clears throat> 30 pieces of silver. And so Jacob tears his garments, puts on sackcloth, and mourns for his son <clears throat> for many days. And all his sons and daughters come to comfort him, but he refuses to be comforted. No, I shall go down to Sheol for my son, mourning, he says. <clears throat> Sheol is the abode of the dead. It's the Hebrew word for hell or grave or place where the dead people go. Um, it's translated as Hades later uh, in Greek. It is the place of mystery, the place of loss, the place of where we can't go to or, or we can't get anyone back from. It is the place of grief and mourning. And so the father is mourning the sons are lying, and little Joseph is sold um, by these Midianites into the hand of Potiphar, who is the captain of the king's guard or the pharaoh's guard. And the terminology for the people that sell him changes in that last verse. First, they are called Ishmaelites, the son of Ishmael, the descendants of Abraham. <clears throat> and now they're called Midianites. The term switches. Um, <clears throat> and I can't help but think that the writer of Genesis is doing a little foreshadowing here. That when a descendant of Joseph, of course, saves his people, um, all of his brothers eventually come to Egypt to seek safety and shelter from him. And then they settle in that land of Egypt. And then eventually they are enslaved. And eventually God delivers them through Moses. And Moses find, meets God with the Midianites. Moses, um, as he is expelled from Egypt, he goes out and becomes a shepherd in the land of Midian. And he marries the daughter of a priest of Midian. And then he goes back and saves God's people. <clears throat> and this is also, I think, a foreshadowing that in the very moments of despair and destruction and loss, God is working for God's purposes behind the scenes as well. And that's true in our moments too. If you are facing loss and grief and situations that feel a lot like Joseph's, where you don't have a lot of choices and you don't have a lot of options and the walls are closing in, God is working even in those times as God is working in the times where you can see it clearly. It's hard to see. If you were to interview Joseph at this moment and ask him, so what's God doing in your life right now? 
He wouldn't be able to see this. And we can't see it either. That's why we hear stories like this to remind us that God is working through everything, even the kind of stuff that is like this. Amen. Remember Gregory, Bishop of Nyssa, probably the most famous, well, one of the most famous Episcopal churches in North America is St. Gregory of Nyssa in San Francisco. Um, Maybe not as popular as it was in the 90s or in the 2000s when it was getting a lot more press coverage. Not a big church, but it's a church that has a very active ministry to the homeless neighbors of San Francisco and also some innovative liturgical practices. And as many churches are in San Francisco, but this one was before all the rest were, um, was inclusive of LGBT people um, in a, before most of the American Episcopal churches were. So we're thankful for that church. But the, the man behind the name, Gregory, <clears throat> was a man enchanted by Christ and dazzled by the meaning of Christ's passion. He was born in Caesarea in Cappadocia, which is modern-day Turkey, also the land of the mythical Amazons, um, That's where the uh, legends were born of Wonder Woman. So I think Wonder Woman, the movie, is set in Cappadocia. Um, That's where the the training area and where she grows up, I think, is right there. It's mythology, of course, but there's got to be some truth to it. The Amazons were um, most likely Scythian warriors who we know from archaeology that many of them were women, the Scythian warriors that rode horses and were fearsome uh, nomadic warriors on the plains of what is now Ukraine and places like that um, are where that legend comes from. But uh, his younger brother, Basil the Great, how would you like to have a younger brother named Basil the Great? I don't know how that would have gone. Um, But he was a reluctant Christian. When he was 20, the transfer of the relics of the 40 martyrs of Sebaste were transferred to um, a family chapel. And these relics were part of his faith journey. They showed him that he could be a Christian too, and needed to be, um, to fight the good fight with Jesus. So he became a lector, a reader, um, a public reader of scripture. And then... He went off to, um, to uh, pursue a career in rhetoric, much like St. Augustine, who is a rhetorician, which is sort of like a professor and movie producer um, of this time period. They would teach things like rhetoric, which was the art of persuasion and public speaking and showmanship, and then they would perform um, speeches. This is a day before movies and TV uh, and radio, obviously, and recording, so everything was live, and um, the, the ability of someone to captivate with words was a, was a very highly prized skill. And so, um, so that was the pr- career he pursued. Um, eventually, he sought out um, ordination in the church, and his brother ran a ground of uh, embezzlement charges. Uh, Gregory went into hiding for... Um, a couple of years, so a very tumultuous early life. Um, but when his brother 
died in 379, um, he received news that his sister was dying, Macrina, as well. And he went there and wrote about her um, death. And it is Gregory's account of Macrina, who is another saint of the church, a giant in faith, who founded communities for men and women, was a leader, um, who died of, of what would we would now call breast cancer. Um, and the account of her death is a, a really powerful account seen through the eyes of her brother Gregory. Um, it's a beautiful account. And so he wrote, he wrote songs, he wrote books, he wrote um, theology, but for me, the greatest account is of his sister's death, a beautiful and touching tribute to her faith and her leadership in the church. Um, so he attended the Second Ecumenical Council at Constantinople and was a pillar of the church, a leader um, with his brother and sister, and uh, someone who not only um, saw the, the need of the church to be organized and to, to move ahead and, and have good things to read, but also the importance of the Trinity. Uh, we live in a time where the Trinity is sort of an obscure thing that uh, most people could either take or leave. Um, and it's hard to see how the Trinity relates to our ordinary lives of faith and what that means for us. But for that time, it meant that Jesus really was one of us. And belief in the Trinity was the belief that Jesus became a human being for you and for me. And that belief that Jesus was a human being, also God, um, that God chose to be incarnate in his son in in the human form on this earth, was a profoundly uh, life-changing idea because it showed that you could live the Christian life in this life, that you didn't have to die and go to heaven to be a true Christian and follower of God, that you could experience life with God here on this earth through the trials and temptations and discouragements of life, because that's exactly what Jesus did. So the, the belief in the Trinity was a belief that you could live the Christian life today. And he was a champion of that. Almighty God, who hast revealed to thy church thine eternal being of glorious majesty and perfect love as one God and trinity of persons, give us grace that, like thy bishop Gregory of Nyssa, we may continue steadfast in the confession of his faith and constant in our worship of thee, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who livest and reignest now and forever. Amen. And we pray a prayer for mission on 58. Lord Jesus Christ, who did stretch out thine arms of love on the hardwood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of thy saving embrace, so clothe us in thy spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know thee to the knowledge and love of thee, for the honor of thy name. Amen.